We'll read two different passages from the passages marked in our order of service this evening. First of all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, reading the first six verses, and then briefly in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in the first chapter of John's Gospel, at the 14th verse, these marvelous, if ultimately unexpoundable words, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. At the heart of the glory of Christ is a profound mystery, and the Word became flesh. Kaihologos sarks againator. John says nothing about how he became flesh, and how could he? When Luke in his gospel comes to unpack for us the glory of the incarnation. There is a decorousness and a a mystery about what he says. He simply says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. There is no fathoming the how of the incarnation. What we do know is that within the womb of the Virgin Mary, the eternal word who ever was, God's own beloved and begotten Son became flesh. He became what he had never, ever been. For this reason, John Owen wrote, This glory... The glory of the hypostatic union is the glory of our religion. The glory of the church, the sole rock whereon it is built, the only spring of present grace and future glory. 
I wonder if that's how you think about the hypostatic union. We spend much time reflecting on it, writing about it, preaching about it, discussing it, debating it. But do we think of the hypostatic union, that ineffable conjunction in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of the eternal God-made flesh, do we think of it as the glory of our religion, the glory of the church, the sole rock whereon it is built, the only spring of present grace and future glory? In my studies in theology at New College at the University of Edinburgh, we, we spent many hours uh, being taught in our dogmatics lectures about the hypostatic union. Uh, it was elevating, it was mind expanding. We discuss the anhypostatic and the enhypostatic character of the hypostatic union. But I'm not sure we ever worshipped. I'm not sure as we were taught and as we received the teaching, we ever wanted to say, Stop, Professor. Let us turn aside. Let us bow down and worship the ineffable conjunction in the womb of the Virgin Mary of the eternal God with our frail flesh. There are four things I want to consider with you this evening, initially based on John 1.14, but then expanding somewhat from that. Notice, first of all, this very simple thing. He became flesh and the word became flesh he did not take on the guise of flesh he was and now he became you see to the early church the incarnation was not only an undeniable truth to confess it was an unfathomable mystery to adore. You cannot miss the palpableness of John's language. You cannot miss the pulse-quickening uh, nature of his language. And, and that little conjunction, I think, has, has an immensity of, of insight and understanding embedded in it. And can you believe it, John is saying? Can you take this in, in addition to all that I've been saying? And the Word he who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God, by whom all things were created, in whom was life and that life was the light of men. He became, he became. There is an unfathomableness to the incarnation of the Son of God. And that's why, as I mentioned last night at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the church fathers could only use negative adverbs to explicate the inexplicable in that conjunction, in that glorious union in the Virgin Mary's womb. There was a union that was without division, without confusion, without separation, without addition, 
a sunkatos, a diairatos, a treptos, a Christos. God in Christ became what he had never been before. The being one, the living one, the ha'on became. Not to display his power, as we shall see in a moment, but to seek and to save the lost. God became in Christ what he never had been that he might seek and save the lost. The one who was became. How right Augustine was when he said, at times we only speak so that we can't remain silent. There isn't language that begins to begin to explicate for us the inexplicable conjunction in the womb of the Virgin Mary of the one who was from everlasting. And he became. He became. We can read the word so easily. I'm almost embarrassed to speak about it. We read the word so easily. But there is an eternal covenant of redemption embedded in that became. This is the holy triune God effecting What in eternity they together had conspired to prepare and provide. God in Christ became. When Herman Bavik begins his prolegomena. He he writes these words. The fundamental idea in the Christian faith. Is the incomprehensibility of God. And that note ought to be one of the radical pulse beats that mark our preaching ministry, our praying ministry, and our reading ministry of the Word of God. People need to hear that we are men who are out of our depth, that we are speaking so that we may not simply remain silent. God has given us words to speak. But within the limitations of those words, we find ourselves utterly out of our depths. He became flesh. But then secondly, notice he became flesh. Paul puts it very dramatically, doesn't he, in Romans 8, 3. Homoiomite sarkos samartias. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became flesh. Calvin puts it somewhat even more dramatically almost. When he says he took flesh to himself. Addicted to so many wretchednesses. He took flesh that wearied. He took flesh that hungered. He who made the starry skies hungered. He took flesh that thirsted. He took flesh that experienced disappointment. He took flesh that knew and endured the deepest sorrow. He wept, he agonized, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He became flesh. He entered into, or better, I think, took to himself the frailty of our humanity. He became flesh. Now, the great question, of course, is why did he do this? Why did he do this? Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, Ian, that's a no-brainer. We know that. Move on. This is Christianity 101. Well, I want to say one thing perhaps tonight, if nothing else. The cross of Jesus Christ is Christianity 101, but it's also Christianity to the infinite degree of its glory. You never get beyond the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We never graduate beyond the cross. Calvary is a bottomless deep that we are called to explore with our congregation. Soren Kierkegaard said life is 70,000 fathoms deep. Well, the gospel is infinitely deep. And our calling is to plunge ourselves with our congregations into the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul meant when he says we preach Christ and him crucified. You think, Paul, did you never weary of doing it? Did you never think, well, I've exhausted all the, the angles to the cross? He would think you were out of your tiny little mind. How do you exhaust the inexhaustible? And we are called to plunge with our congregations into the infinities and immensities of the gospel of the Christ who took our flesh to himself and who took that flesh to Calvary's cross and had it nailed there for our sake and for our salvation. Probably no one, at least in my limited reading, has put this better than John Calvin. It was also imperative that he who was to become our redeemer be true God and true man. It was his task to swallow up death. Who but the life could do this? It was his task to conquer sin. Who but very righteousness could do this? It was his task to rout the powers of world and air. Who but a power higher than world or air could do this? Now where does life or righteousness or lordship and authority of heaven lie but with God alone? Therefore, our most merciful God, when he willed that we be redeemed, made himself our redeemer in the person of his only begotten son. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Calvin continues in 2.12.3, since neither as God alone could he feel death, nor as man alone could he overcome it, he coupled human nature with divine, that to atone for sin, he might submit the weakness of the one to death, and that by wrestling with death by the power of the other nature, 
he might win victory for us. Behold your God. Here is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But we need also to say, don't we, at this moment, that in becoming flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ did not seek for one moment to be what he natively had always been. His divine glory, yes, was eclipsed. But never wholly eclipsed. It was veiled. It was never diminished one iota. And so when Paul writes in Philippians 2, 7, he emptied himself, he out an echinosin. He explicates himself, doesn't he? Himself he emptied, taking the form of a servant. His kenosis was him taking to himself the servanthood of true humanity. There are four aspects to becoming flesh, I think, that I would like us to reflect on this evening. He became, he became flesh. But what did that actually mean? There are four dimensions, I think, to the glory of his becoming flesh that I would like us to reflect on for a time. In his becoming flesh, we see the glory of the divine condescension. The glory of the divine condescension. God coming down to where we are. This is grace, you see. Grace is a word we we easily talk about. To my shame, when was I last overwhelmed by the wonder of grace? I write about it. We sing about it. We preach about it. We discuss it. We debate it. Brothers, when were you last rendered speechless and brought prostrate before God by the wonder of his grace to you in Jesus Christ? Thomas Goodwin puts it beautifully. I remember the first time I read these words in Goodwin, volume 5, page, oh goodness knows, uh, 152 or somewhere about there. He wrote these words, grace is more than mercy and love. It super adds to them. It denotes not simply love, but the love of a sovereign, transcendent, superior. One that may do what he will. That may wholly choose whether he will love or no. Now God, who is an infinite sovereign, who might have chosen whether ever he would love us or no, for him to love us. This is grace, says Goodwin. For him to love us. This is grace. And this is what we're being told here in John 1.14. He became flesh. He came down to where we are. Out of free, undeserved kindness, grace, mercy and love from the heart of a holy God. Now I think this is something that we think we understand 
and that we think probably most people in our congregations understand, but I'm actually persuaded increasingly that we do not understand this as well as we ought, and certainly many in our congregations don't understand it as well as they might. John Owen wrote in volume two, Communion with God, many Christians think there is no sweetness in God except what has been purchased by the high price of Jesus' blood. Many Christians think there is no sweetness in God except what has been purchased at the high price of Jesus' blood, says Owen, that's blasphemy. That turns the gospel on its head. The gospel is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The giving of the Lord Jesus Christ was not to procure the father's love. It was the gift of the father's love. Now you think, well Ian, that's so basic. Some years ago, one of my assistants came to me after an evening service in tears. He's a fine Fine young man with a very effective ministry now. And I wondered what was wrong. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I don't think I've ever really grasped that before. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And I'm thinking, what did I say? Couldn't think what I'd said. And he looked me in the eye with tears. And he said, I don't think I've ever really grasped that the Savior did not come to win the Father's love for me, but he came as the gift of the Father's love to me. And it made me ask myself this question, Ian, how have you been preaching over these past many years? How many other people could be saying what this fine young man was saying to me? Many Christians, many Christians his own. Not a few. In his judgment, in his day, there were many, he believed, who thought that the love of God was purchased at the high price of Jesus' blood. No, says own. This turns the gospel on its head. In becoming flesh, we're confronted with the glory of the divine condescension. Secondly, We're confronted with the glory of exemplary humanity. He became flesh. Flesh that was altogether sinless. Addicted to so many wretchednesses. Subject to weariness, pain, suffering and ultimately death. But exemplary humanity. Not Adam redivivus, but God's last Adam. And this is what God is conforming his people to. He became flesh. Because God's ultimate purpose is not your salvation or mine. God's ultimate purpose is the glory of his son. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that. That's the protasis. What's the apodosis, as John Murray would have said? 
so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You and I are God's proximate purpose. The Lord Jesus Christ is his ultimate purpose. And the Son of God became flesh that he might become the firstborn among many brothers. The head of a new humanity, a new humanity that reflected in an analogically creaturely way his divine God-man glory. I've often wondered why the early church made the impact that it did on the pagan godless world of that time. There were no evangelistic campaigns. Now this isn't a comment about evangelistic campaigns. There were no evangelistic campaigns. There there were no programs. There were transformed lives. There were lives that the gospel of God in Jesus Christ had invaded and made new and the world didn't know what to make of it. I remember years ago reading something of Jim Packer's that has never left me. He said, evangelism is Christians being Christians in the world. Now, when you first hear that, you think, well, okay, that's fine, that's fine. But what else, Dr. Packer? The definition he gives seems so lacking until you grasp its profundity. Evangelism is Christians being Christians in the world. Now, Packerism wasn't saying, and I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't plan events and organize this or that. I don't mean that. But the impact of the church on the world will not be down to our programs and our campaigns. It will be down to the gospel being preached in all its fullness. Christ being displayed in all his glory. And people being caught up into the wonder of what God has done in Jesus Christ. That their lives tell out the greatness of the Lord. And our lives then give power and conviction to what we say. The gospel comes to transform our lives. Christ became flesh that he might become the prototypical man of God. The prototypical man to whom God by his spirit is conforming all his people to. But then thirdly, there is the glory of saving obedience. Because he became flesh that he might become obedient unto death, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2. Even the death of a cross. And that obedience was hard won. Jesus Christ did not cruise to glory. He suffered He bled and he died. It cost him to obey his father. It was ever his delight to obey the father. But it cost him. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He did not cruise to glory. And the Holy Spirit, from the moment of his conception in the virgin's womb, sought to sanctify that holy thing. 
and the sanctification because he grew in favor with God and with man. The sanctification was not effortless. Think about our Lord Jesus Christ. How did he grow in favor with God and with man? Well, you say, well, he was the God-man. It was inevitable. Was it? Why are we told, for example, in the third servant song, morning by morning he wakens my ear to hear. How good it was to hear John this morning speak at such length, thankfully, about our need to be men of the word. Because our Savior was, morning by morning he wakens my ear to hear as one who is being taught. How did our Savior know the scriptures? How was he able when Satan came to plunder the book of, Deuter- of, uh, book of Deuteronomy and know precisely where to go to repulse the temptations of the evil one? You say, well, he, he was the God-man and uh, the deity would flow into the humanity. That would destroy our salvation. He wouldn't then be truly human like us. He learned the scriptures. He applied himself to the sanctifying ministry of the word of God, blessed by the spirit of God. And what the Holy Spirit first produced in Christ, he comes to replicate in the people of Christ. There is nothing docetic about the Savior's humanity. Knowledge of the word of God was not infused into him. It was learned by him. He is the better than Adam. He is the one who in our flesh said, not my will, but your will be done. And a fourth aspect to him becoming flesh is that in that we see the glory of sympathetic compassion. I've just always been deeply struck, and I hope more than that, that in the first of the four servant songs in Isaiah, remarkably the first of the four, we're introduced to the servant, his chosen one in whom his soul delights, the one on whom he will place his spirit. And what is it that the Lord in the first of the servant songs, which of course will escalate till they come to their omega point in the fourth servant song in 52 and 53. What's the first thing the father wants us to know about his servant? He will be unyieldingly faithful He will never deviate or depart from the pathway of faithfulness till he brings forth justice. And in the midst of doing that, he will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering flax. There will be a tenderness, there will be a gentleness about this servant that will be breathtaking, that will be absolutely breathtaking. Here, here is a great high priest who knows our frame, not simply by divine omniscience, but by personal experience. He became flesh. He stood where I stand. He 
He took the frailty of my flesh to himself. He became tempted in all points such as we are, yet without sin. He shares our humanity. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And brothers, tonight there is glorified dust on the throne of heaven. Glorified dust. Who understands our weakness, our fears. Who has entered into our humanity. Not only did he become, not only did he become flesh, but thirdly he became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. We're almost but not quite yet at the height of the glory of divine condescension. He became sin. He did not become a sinner. But he did become sin for us. God laid on him. On his own and only begotten son. What did it mean for the father? To lay on his son. His sinless son. His only begotten son. His pride and joy. Of whom he had so recently said. This. This is my son. With whom I am well pleased. What did it mean for the father? To lay upon his own son. The iniquity of us all. Now of course we must speak here of. The double imputation. Of our sin to Christ. And of his righteousness to us. The decaionion tes catalages. In 2 Corinthians 5. But let me say just one brief thing as I hurry on. Maybe I'm only speaking for myself. I think I've spoken far too casually and too easily and too clinically about imputation in my years of ministry. I believe it with all my heart. But I'm ashamed to think of how often I have preached on the imputation of my sin to the sinless son of God and the imputation of his righteousness to me in our union together and I've not been overwhelmed to the point where I've had to say brothers I need to stop now maybe you think well maybe that's to do with temperament yes perhaps it is culture there's no theology without psychology But you know, sometimes I think people like me who are Scots and we we don't like to talk too openly about ourselves. I think we, we excuse ourselves by saying, well, we are Scottish, we just don't do that. When the truth is, we've not felt the weight of the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ. You see, the imputation of our sin to Christ and of his righteousness to us is not simply a truth we confess, though we should confess it gladly. It's an unfathomable wonder we are to glory in. May I never boast, says Paul, except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. 
So he became, he became flesh, he became sin. But fourthly, and here we come to the omega point of his becoming, he became a curse. He became a curse, Galatians 3, 10 through 13. And this is why we read the 22nd Psalm. As the curse of God fell upon him in our place as our covenant head, as our substitute and representative, as our surety, he cried, Kratzo, the verb. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now maybe some people would ask, well Ian, where is the glory in that? Where is the glory in that? In Jesus Christ becoming a curse. Well, it's the glory of love's hiddenness, isn't it? In the consuming darkness that engulfed and finally overwhelmed the Savior's soul, the glory of God was being manifested to the cosmos. I have little doubt. Well, I can't say that. I would like to think I have little doubt that as the curse of a holy God fell upon a holy son, the holy father was saying and perhaps even singing, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Here is the glory of redemptive triumph. In the contorted face and earth-splitting cry from the cross, we see where we see nowhere else the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. On a garbage heap outside Jerusalem, God displayed his glory. On a garbage heap outside Jerusalem, the glory of God was displayed in all its unimaginable splendor. Luther was right, wasn't he? God forsaking God. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? As we come to a close, let me return to John Owen for a moment because Owen sees all of this comprehended in Christ's glory as mediator. He says in another place in volume two, I think Christ meets us only as mediator. And as mediator, God's son does not stand between God and man as if he were a middleman. Rather, as mediator, he is one with God and one with us. And he willingly becomes what he was not to unite us to himself And in uniting us to himself, unites us to God. And so Owen writes, For although in himself or his own divine person he was over all God blessed forever, yet he humbled himself for the salvation of the church unto the eternal glory of God to take our nature upon him and to be made man. And those who cannot see a divine glory in his so doing neither know him 
nor love him, nor believe in him, nor do any way belong to him. That's why Luther said, crux probat omnia. The cross is the test of everything. That's why the preaching of the cross in its multifacetedness must be ever at the heart of our preaching. Because it's the test of everything. For Owen, Christ's incomprehensible condescension, as Owen puts it himself, in becoming mediator, says Owen, is the glory of the Christian religion and the animating soul of all evangelical truth. I said earlier that for John Owen, the hypostatic union in Christ was the glory of our religion, the glory of the church, the sole rock whereon it is built, the only spring of present grace and future glory. Immediately after that statement, Owen highlights in a very wonderful way, at least wonderful to me, the wisdom of God in effecting this ineffable union. Owen says Satan's sin was twofold. It was envy of the divine person of God's son and hatred of that image of God's son in God's human creatures. That's the twofold nature of Satan's sin. Envy of the divine person of God's son and hatred of that image in God's human creatures. So what does God do? He unites the very nature Satan hated to bring about his demise and final eternal destruction. Behold your God. Behold your God. So, let us live going back to yesterday, in contemplation of the glory of Christ and virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. Owen is not saying that we're not to apply the word of God to the consciences of men. He's not saying that we are not to take the law of God, the spiritual law of God that we have received from the hands of Jesus Christ and apply that law searchingly to the hearts and consciences of men and women. But he's saying you need to do that within, within the gospel context in which it is said. And the gospel context in which it is said is the glorious incarnation of the Son of God for our sake and for our salvation. And that's why Thomas Goodwin said, if thou wouldst know what sin is, go to Mount Calvary. He's not neglecting Mount Sinai. He's not saying the law of God is effete and uh, no longer applicable. He's not saying it's fallen into theological desuetude. But he's saying, if you want to know what sin is, in all its heinousness, in all its vileness, 
It's not Sinai you go to. It's actually Calvary you go to. The glory of the incarnate Son of God. Seen in all its splendor. In the dying form of a spit-dripping, bloodied, crucified man on a garbage heap outside Jerusalem. But to the eye of faith, that is the most splendid sight in the cosmos. And that will be the most splendid sight in heaven. The Lamb as if it had been slain in the midst of the throne because God would never, ever, 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 ever have his people forget what it cost almighty God to secure our redemption. And anywhere we look, we will behold the lamb, the only marred body in heaven, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified, behold your God. Let us pray. Father, we are heartily ashamed as your servants that we so little glory in your Son. When he left your throne and came into this broken, dark, sinful world, joining our frail flesh to his glorious deity, and when he took that frail flesh through life sinlessly and perfectly and offered it up without spot or blemish in obedience to you on Calvary's cross for us and then rose on the third day, We are heartily ashamed that our hearts do not overflow with wonder, love and praise. Lord, forgive us, we pray. And make us men who minister out of the overflow of lives that have seen the glory of God on a garbage heap. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.